Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM, Channel 127. Welcome to Progress After Dark. Good evening to everybody out there on the West Coast driving home in your vehicles. Hello to everybody else in the Middle and the East Coast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I'm John Fugelsang. Here... In Manhattan, New York City, Thea is producing us from Brooklyn. Chris, our executive producer, is being executive in production like down in South Carolina. And for the next couple hours, we're going to be with you right here on Channel 127 at 866-997-4748. We would love to hear from you. The prosecution in E. Jean Carroll's defamation and rape case against Donald Trump has rested and the defense has rested after calling zero witnesses. Also, as we mentioned earlier, we'll go deeper into this, but four members of the Proud Boys, including their former leader, Denny Terrio, no, I'm so sorry, Enrique Tario, were convicted today of seditious conspiracy for plotting to keep Donald Trump in power after his election defeat by leading a violent mob and attacking the Capitol on January 6th of 2021. Now we see how much any of them are willing to squeal on Roger Stone. Okay, let's go to one of our favorite guests. We still get to talk to us. Uh, Dr. Jason Nichols is an award-winning full-time senior lecturer in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland in College Park. You may have seen or read him in The Guardian or Al Jazeera, Fox News or MSNBC, Newsmax. We are always very, very grateful to have Dr. Nichols with us. Jason, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always great to be home. It's It's great great to to see see you. So So, I didn't expect Donald Trump to take the stand in his own defense in the E. Jean Carroll case. I would have been thrilled to see him put his hand on a Bible just because I want to see which one catches on fire, the Bible or the hand. But um, uh, were you at all surprised that the defense offered absolutely no defense after this uh, today? It's, It's gotten so many headlines and it seems like just beating up the witness was the entire modus operandi of his defense team. Yeah, I think that was the entire plan was to try to impugn her credibility, make it seem like she uh, is crazy, like she is making this up. She wanted to sell her book um, and to do what prosecutors and defense attorneys have done to rape victims for a really, really long time, which is make it seem like, you know, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? And one of the things that I always remind people for anyone who would ask a silly question like that is an abnormal response to an abnormal circumstance is perfectly normal. You know, like you're not 
You don't know how you're going to react in that under those circumstances and under that kind of stress. This is why, you know, people talk about fight or flight. You know, you don't know really how you're going to how you're going to react. But again, I was a little shocked that Takapina took that approach yeah. to to the defense. I, I thought that they were going to try more of what happened when we saw, even though it wasn't a criminal trial, but what we saw with Judge Kavanaugh, where with they made sure to call her, you know, doctor. And yeah. they they were like, yeah, something may have happened to her. It just wasn't him. You know, that was right. kind they, of- they, 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 were, they were concerned with not appearing to be thugs in their questioning. Right. It's a little difficult when you're one of the more famous people <laughs> walking the planet right now to say, yeah, something happened. It just wasn't me. Uh, you know, I, I think that's that's a difficult defense for um, Donald Trump. But at the same time, I thought that they were going to do something where they didn't seem like they were victim blaming or bashing the victim. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you react that way? Right. Why didn't you so scream? Aggressive. Why didn't you scream for help? Like these men asking this woman this question years later. Yeah, I mean, it's just absurd. And as someone who's had friends, family members, ex-girlfriends, and certainly students who have been sexually assaulted, you know, to put that on a, on a woman or on anybody it could, you know, could have been a man, could have been, you know, anyone to put that on someone, I think is just despicable and disgusting. I mean, I think there were other ways to to defend Donald Trump. Maybe you could, you know, say her memory is hazy or, you know, whatever. But that whole thing is uh, of attacking her in that way. Why didn't you react this way? I don't think that's going to go well with a jury. Uh, I don't oh, know what yeah. the jury looks like, but I can't see jurors in 2023 thinking that that was a good defense for Donald Trump. And, you know, it struck me like we're, we're always being told, right, that that sexual assault survivors can be traumatized again when they have to testify years later. We're always told it's really not rare for people who've been sexually assaulted to not come forward right away because the victim has to be ready to be the only bearer of the information. They have to carry the burden of all the questions. All the defense has to do is attack the decision-making of a victim, right? To just introduce doubt. And we understand objectively why so many women don't come forward. And yet to see it actually happen is so stunning to see. I mean, to, to, to hear and read the transcripts and see what a woman who comes forward with her story will have to face and the kind of humiliation she'll be up against if the guy she's accusing has deep pockets. It's we can read about it, Jason. But when you actually see it happening in real life, I understand why so many women and so many men don't come forward. Absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, like all of these people uh, were living with this where they, you know, they didn't want to come forward, particularly because the, the person who allegedly assaulted them was a powerful person. You know, it, it's it's definitely difficult to come forward on that. It's one thing when you're accusing someone with a, you know, maybe a rap sheet who's a working class person and they jumped out the bushes. It's right. different. When you're trying to accuse someone whose name is on buildings all over the East Coast. Uh, so it, it's a 
I almost want to write E. Jean Carroll. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I literally want to write her and say, I'm sorry you had to experience that. You should. Um, she's great. Yeah. She's she's done our show before. I've known her for 20 years. She's, she's you know, a pretty neat lady. I, I'm sure she would appreciate it very much because, honestly, this is a time for men to speak up, right? Like, I think the, the some of the unsung villains in sexual assault are nice guys because nice guys are the ones who don't believe men can be this brutal. I mean, douchebag men know what they are and women know what they are, but nice guys are always the last to realize how common this brutality that women have to face is. And and that's why it's going to take, rape's got to be stopped by men who, who are standing up against it and by women who, you know, arm themselves. Because I support AK-47s for women, I really do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think... Uh, I'm, I'm for self-defense all, all the way around. You know, I think people should be able to defend themselves. But I also am for 100% peace. I think those are two, you know, self-defense exactly. and being violent are two different things. But, yeah, I mean, it's, this was just what we've seen is Donald Trump. People are making it seem like this is an outlier. We have to remember Donald Trump has been accused by 26 women uh, of some form of sexual assault or sexual battery. And then uh, one of the things that E. Jean Carroll did was she called the, some of the women who have accused him of mm-hmm. sexual assault or battery or, or sexual assault and battery. That's right. And I think that could that could be effective. Uh, you know, we'll see how jury. It's really difficult when you have a famous person. You know what yes. I mean? Like people think they know that famous person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether you like Donald Trump or not, you're you're like, well, no, I I know he wouldn't do that. And it's like, no, you don't. You don't know that person. Um, but it's also it, it also speaks to this this, you know, broader right wing trend. that's nothing new, but it's still shocking to see it of of always having to demonize the victim. Right. Like like we see it with the Eugene Carroll case. We saw it this week when Governor Greg Abbott announced his fifty thousand dollar reward for info on the criminal who killed five illegal immigrants Friday. He didn't say five men, women and children didn't say five people didn't say five souls had to say five illegal immigrants. And of course, we're seeing it now in the way the right wing is mobilizing to defend the man who committed homicide on Jordan Neely on the F train in the in, in New York City. It seems like they'll talk stand your ground all day um, until it comes to some kind of brutality they agree with. And then suddenly yeah, no. that's the moral choice. Absolutely. And, you know, you made me think of uh, I was just reading about this lieutenant governor in North Carolina who actually called the the. Students, the survivors of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, you know, Parkland. He called them spoiled little bastards and media prostitutes. Mm. Uh, spoiled, angry, know-it-all children. I mean, th- these are kids who watch their friends get slaughtered. And this guy is probably going to win the Republican nomination, yeah. you know, in uh in the state of north carolina i mean it's it's ridiculous this guy could become the governor of the state and that's how he feels about young people who are victims and and who are probably still dealing with the trauma of seeing their friends get shot up their classmates their teachers so i mean it's there's just like this heartlessness and it's funny you you know you but you know this you know to, to a weak person to a weak man that kind of cruelty comes off as strength. 
right? I mean, that's how yeah. fascism always sells itself. We'll be mean. We'll beat up those on the bottom. We'll just be as cruel as possible to the most powerless. We'll have a pass for the people who actually outsourced your jobs overseas. The wealthy, they're the job creators. The ones who are telling you why your country's going to war or why your job had to go to China, they're fine. We'll cut their taxes more. The polluters that are poisoning your air and water will cut their taxes and give them subsidies. We'll only beat up on the underclasses to make you feel like we're fighting for you because you should be scared out there of those poor people. And that's the racket. That's every fascist society ever. We're watching them trying to have it take root here every day. So tonight I actually, right before I, you know, I got on here, um, I was on Fox. So I was on Fox in the eight o'clock hour, you know, the old guy spot. <laughs> right on. And uh, I was on there with, with Lawrence Jones, who I actually like. I actually really uh, like Lawrence Jones as a person. Um, and I know he's doing a job, um, yeah, yeah. but one of the things that I was seeing as, you know, I was there waiting to go on and I, you know, it's the only time I would ever watch Fox. I'm in the green room and it was just like, just so much fear mongering. Oh, like yeah. it was just like New York city is so horrible there. You're going to get mugged when you walk out of the street. You know, or when you walk out of your, your apartment or your house, you know, you're going to get mauled by, a rat, robbed by a homeless person, you know, yeah. spat on by, you know, it was just like crazy. And it's like yeah. New York I kept saying this on air because we talked about this very issue that we're, we're embarking on right now. It's like New York is the safest big city in America. New York yeah. is the ninth safest city big city in the world we are below the national average for violence new york's not even in the most 10 dangerous cities in the u.s oh not even close i don't think it's in the top 30 if i'm not mistaken mm -hmm. and i'll tell you this new york city by the way crime is going down i don't agree with mayor adams on everything but crime is actually going trending downward year to yep. date it's down yeah. about 5.6% overall. Subway crime is down 9%. Making it seem like the way that they're trying to spin this is there's so much crime and vigilantes are like they're trying to make the taxi driver you know, argument. Of like, course. The, the old, you know, this guy just stood up. And here yeah. it was with a person who was suffering mental illness. Again, I don't, I'm not going to use the word murder only because murder is a legal term and I'm not a lawyer. I will, I'm only I will, using the word because a coroner used the word homicide, doctor. Homicide, yeah. That word homicide. I'm, I get to use the word murder, I think. I, I think that's yeah. how the rules work. Yeah, I, wrong, I use I'll the take word it homicide because homicide is a medical term. And that, that okay. I know. Okay. Um, I, I'm not using murder because I don't know if it's... Man, all, all I know is all I know um, is only only one crime took place on Tuesday night on the F train. Only right. one crime we know of took place, and it wasn't any crime committed by right, Jordan. Jordan Neely. He, he I mean, we, we know he shouted. I've been riding these subways over 35 years. I've seen every kind of mentally ill person having a very public loud fit. I have seen people do disgraceful, horrible things. I've never seen anyone in 35 years do anything that would require being put in a chokehold until they die. And yet... And yet the only crime was committed was the homicide and the man who committed it was not even detained. They just let him go. Yeah.
in New York. Like that, York. you know, you expect that in Georgia or in Alabama, but in, in New York, they just let this guy go. He chokes a guy. He comes up behind him. So it's not even like he it's is facing Yeah. It's not like it's this guy screaming at his face and he felt threatened. He comes up behind the guy. He chokes him, puts him in a rear naked choke, holds on past the point where the guy is out. You know what I mean? And literally chokes him to death. There's no, and I'm saying this as a martial artist, number one, it's just so dishonorable, you know, number one. But also, I always thought New Yorkers, if anyone in the world is accustomed, like you said, to people who are mentally ill, coming in, screaming loud things, saying they're hungry, like most New Yorkers I know wouldn't even know that. Like they were just like, they're in their own zone on the train, yeah. like they're ready to get home. They're not even worried. As long as you don't touch them, they're okay. And nobody, yeah. that, Jordan Neely touched no one. He did didn't not lay a finger anyone. on anyone. He didn't do any of that. But somebody was like so offended by hearing a loud voice in the most crowded train system in in probably at least in the United States that he felt the need to come up behind this guy and choke him to death. Yeah. Um, to yeah. me, there's some some sort of crime committed, and and how that how the NYPD can take him, question him, and let him go. Is well, crazy. you know why? Because they want to look the, the NYPD. They're courteous. They want to give him a lot of time to scrub all of his social media from any posts that might make him look like a racist nut job. I mean, I'm thinking about how last year when we saw that shooter in the subway at 36th Street in Brooklyn, it took it took less than less than 12 hours, I think, for the local news to give us the name of the shooter. And yet it's been three days. And all we know about the man who choked this man to death in a homicide is that he's a 24-year-old ex-Marine who might live in the city. I mean, I'm just stunned yeah. by all of this. And it seems like Governor Hochul uh, really found Jesus overnight. Last night, she was talking about how, well, we have to protect everyone and people deserve to feel safe. And I think she read the comments on that because by today she was talking about how there has to be justice for this man's family. Yeah, I mean, it's... I, I don't understand how you can misread that. You know, yelling and being hungry should not be a crime punishable by death. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not a crime at all, but it's it, it's not something that should lead to a death sentence. Somebody saying, I'm, and, and that's apparently what he was screaming. He was screaming, mm-hmm. it was a cry for help. If anything, there should have, you know, hope, I, I would have hoped that there was a social worker on that train who could say, look, Here's some resources. Maybe we can go here and get you some help. But instead, he just got put in a chokehold. If there's anything, I think it is the one thing that I will agree with the right on on, on, in this particular situation is that we do need better resources for people who are having mental health issues and mental health crisis. Of course. We certainly need that. While at the same time, because I hear what Eric Adams is trying to do, while at the same time respecting civil liberties, not just rounding people up either. Yeah. But certainly we need more resources for people, particularly in a city like New York, where, you know, it can be overwhelming just to walk the streets. You know, if you've ever been lost in New York, you know, by yourself, like it it can be overwhelming. 
And yeah. so if you're somebody who's struggling to eat, struggle, doesn't have a home, that's obviously got a lot of mental pressure to put on an individual. And this man was struggling with mental health. And instead of giving him help, we choked him to death. That's it. And that I mean, person- show, me, show me where a chokehold for 15 minutes is self-defense. I mean, I'm trying to think of the scenario. And again, you know this, 15 minutes, that train stopped. Like, people got on and off the tracks. I'm, I'm sure there are so many witnesses, and I'm hoping people start coming forward in the next couple of days. And you know what? It's, it's interesting. Just to, to if, if you know how to apply a choke, and I'm saying this as a martial artist or someone who used to practice martial arts, you know how to, to apply a choke. You can do it where you you don't have to hurt somebody. And a lot of times you can be, it can be safer than throwing strikes. Like if we were out at the bar and you got a little too drunk, I might put you in a chokehold. I'm not going to start raining down blows on you because I care about you and I want you to be safe. This guy was trying to choke this guy to death. And the other thing is there's a reason why police don't do chokeholds, you know, because of this very issue. First of all, it is impossible, literally impossible to not resist being choked. So if you're trying to calm somebody down, you know, sometimes a chokehold, particularly when you're squeezing. You're right. That's what happened to George Floyd. You will resist. Your body cannot stay there and just take it. You have to, your body goes into fight and flight. Yes. Yeah. And that makes someone choke you harder. Exactly. So it's just like. The reason why a human being can't drown themselves, why you, you, know, you have to like tie a brick or something to your leg. Exactly. You, you, you will resist being choked. There's no way to say stop resisting and choking somebody's neck. And then there is a time clearly where this guy stops resisting. Yeah. And he kept choking. And well. so that's to me, that's a crime. I think this guy, I don't know what his issues are. But he certainly should be held accountable for this. Well, we're, we're, we're going to find out his issues very, very soon. They're already calling him the Subway Strangler uh, on, in New York, and I approve of that because uh, his name has been unofficially released. If you search on the Internet, there people have sent in saying, I recognize him from my high school. He's apparently a guy from Long Island. I don't want to say his name on the air because then it might not be the real guy. But we're about to learn a whole lot, I think, in the next few days about this nameless fellow our right-wing friends have been defending and yeah, let's he's just hope that he's a, yeah but he's the new george he's the new george zimmerman you know it's like yeah. it's like here's what you defend let's now get to own all of his other behaviors bernard i mean we've there's been generations of this bernard gets you yep. know like oh, it yeah. goes way back where there's this kind of again the taxi driver white fantasy of killing you know yeah. unruly black people um That's and it. In this particular situation, it was just a man, a desperate man with a mental health issue That's who it. really just needed a social worker. That's what that guy needed. I'll tell you, the guy they say did it uh, grew up in Islip, New York, which is a town over from where I grew up. And I knew plenty of guys that would try to get away with this. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome back. Uh, Jason, while I still have you, I I do want to talk to you about uh, presidential politics, however, because um, the president has announced his re-election campaign. He's somewhat behind where Barack Obama was at this point in 2012. His actual campaign manager doesn't even start her job for two weeks. And as if that's not enough, as you know, we have to sit through this uh, this endless debate, not over how popular his policies are or how much his policies would help people, but his age as if somehow, well, he might need a nap. And I guess that means I don't support abortion rights. What is your take both on the president's age and on the debate over the president's age? Yeah, I think it's it's ridiculous. The guy got a whole lot done. And now I I would, you know, in the future, I would like to see some younger people get an opportunity to hold office and there were other younger options out there, yeah. if, if, but I don't understand how age is the determining factor. There are people who are who are saying they're going to support RFK Jr. And then you say, why? And it's like, because Joe Biden's too old. Yeah. And it, it's like, do you know those what? People have never, those people have never heard RFK Jr. give a speech, by the way. Right. He sounds every bit as, you know, like Joe Jr. Sounds like Joe Biden's granddad who smokes too many camels without the filter. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No. And I think a lot of people don't know RFK Jr.'s history. I mean, I didn't even know some things. I mean, I always thought he was a good environmental lawyer. And I, I read a couple of things that kind of put some of that in question. You know, in terms of people, you know, New York State was thinking about moving to nuclear power. Nuclear power is not the same three mile island nuclear power anymore. Yeah. Like it's actually yeah. really safe. Uh, but well, well, now, well, well, we hope we hope. Right. I mean, Fukushima is really safe, too. We hope. But I, I know what you mean uh, in terms of uh, there is a lot of very credible environmentalists who are embracing uh, nuclear energy. And I think we have to have the debate. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we certainly have to have the debate. I can't, I can't I'm not, you know, that well versed, but I've read some things that say nuclear power is uh, is a lot safer than it once was. Uh, but what I was reading is that RFK getting that nuclear power plant shut down led to more carbon in our in the air. <laughs> you know, so it, it didn't really help the environment. Now, again, I'm not saying anything bad about RFK. I think he's actually like, like we said last week, I, I think he's sincere. There's a lot I like uh, about him. I've, I've met him many times. He's done this show. Yeah, I, I just personally, I think Joe Biden 
it will look really bad if we move on. I think a, a lot of what's happening right now with people like Nikki Haley, who's still, you know, barely polling at all. That's right. On the GOP side, she's trying to say mental competency tests and uh, trying to make it seem like, and, and it's strategically very smart. What she's doing is strategically smart is, hey, Joe Biden may not make it. Are you ready for President Harris? Who, you know, Harris is probably less popular than Joe Biden. So I think strategically it makes sense. But number one, I personally, I don't, you know, I'm not the most religious guy in the world, but mm-hmm. I don't play with saying somebody's going to die. I think that's, no, that's, no. <laughs> you know, I don't mess with that. No, I mean, Nikki Haley's in a tough spot. She's trying really hard, like Mike Pence, to audition for people who hate her. And, you know, how much can she grovel for the for the man she knows is unfit for the office? I, I think at the end of the day, you know, Joe Biden is in a a pretty good position because Roe v. Wade is going to help him more than his age will hurt him. And I think also by next year, by this year, we should be seeing the effects of the infrastructure bill actually putting into play and people going to work and things getting fixed in cities and roads and bridges around the country. There'll be a yeah, lot I mean, and, and I think he's he's going to be helped by some of the policy that's being passed. I think uh, North Carolina is is going to pass a, a veto proof abortion ban. That's and right. I think people are going to be up in arms about that, because whenever they put it up for a referendum, we know how it turns out. We saw how it how it turned out in Kansas, a mm-hmm. state that is far more red than North Carolina. North Carolina is a purple state, basically. And yet. Uh, pretty sure, you know, their their governor is a Democrat. Um, there are other Democrats who have won statewide elections. If, if Cal Cunningham could have kept his zipper zipped up, he would have won that. <laughs> you know, um, so I, I really believe that people are going to get fired up about this. The, the thing is, honestly, John, is Democrat. I don't know what the answer to this is, but being in right wing media. Democrats have to come up with an answer for the moral panic over trans people. I know. I don't know what the answer is. Honestly, I don't know how to. I think the answer is, I think the answer is, I think the answer is, you know, do you believe in liberty? Do you believe in freedom? Do you believe in letting Americans in a system of liberty and freedom live how they want to live as long as they're not bothering or harming any other person or property? That is the conservative argument for transgender equality and for leaving these people to hell alone. Now, you want to get into things that affect all of our lives, like junior high school girls swim teams. Well, that's the sort of thing that's going to be solved by different municipalities, different sporting leagues. We can have a big fight over it. But at the end of the day, for me, it comes down to a very simple Christian and and, and patriotic point of view. Are you fighting every day to make their lives harder and more painful? Or are you fighting to give protection and dignity to them for their freedom? Do you want to be a part of making the transgender suicide? side rate go up or low because a they've always been here and b young people growing up now aren't going to have the same hang-ups our parents generation had about transgender people they're not going away yeah no i that's that's what i I try to do but i have very mixed success on that by the way yeah i I mean I, i agree with everything you said um i think one of the things that they're trying to make an issue is people young people transitioning uh, before they're 18 or, right. uh, you know, and, and 
Look, I, I don't know how how we sell that because I, I, I have a friend, one of my close friends who's, you know, a, a Democrat through and through. I'm farther, way farther to the left than this person is. But right. they're still, you know, they're still solidly blue. They, they're a Joe Biden supporter. But they've been sending me all this stuff on like trans regret and, uh, you yeah, know, like I get those too. I get them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, if they can if they can affect that person, he's sending me videos. You by know what Matt. I send them? I send them articles <laughs> about Iraq war regret. I send them articles about Iraq war regret because that killed a million people and transgender people. They get to make their own choices. I think the Democratic point of view will probably wind up being, well, then the kids can do that, but not medically until they're 18. But I think the liberal point of view is it's none of our goddamn business. If they and their families and doctors agree, the American Medical Association does not classify gender reassignment surgery as a mental illness or gender dysphoria as a mental illness. So I just kind of defer to medical experts and not people with fucking right-wing podcasts that's that's where i land yeah no I, i'm with you on that 100 <laughs> i just don't know my my thing is how do you sell it that's yeah. my thing they're they're getting my thing is if that guy is sending me videos by matt walsh i know like and look at Budweiser. Look, look, look at this. They found their whipping boy, Jason. This is Muslims and undocumented immigrants and gay people who want to marry all wrapped in one. Every bit of fear mongering they've done for the last because it's, it's always a minority group with no power that they've got to scare us about. Right. It was rappers in the in, in the 90s. But in this century, it's been Muslims, undocumented people, gay folks who want to marry. And now it's transgender people. And it speaks to all these fears. And I think the only solution is going to be. People got to know more trans people. You know, they got to know RuPaul. They got to know more gay people in the media. And the homophobia got lighter as more trans issues come to the fore, as there's more cases of, of injustice um, and more trans celebrities. I think it's but it's going to be generational. I mean, gay yeah. marriage didn't happen in one year. It took decades of fighting. And uh, it's going to be a study for, you know, the decency in people. And it's going to be yeah, a lot of Democrats, I think, having to rely on individual freedom. And what do the experts say? Yeah, I'm just worried about 2024, to be honest with you, and how it's going to I don't think it's going to be enough. I don't think it's going to be enough to get Donald Trump elected again. They'll try. <laughs> yeah, no, they're, they're definitely going to try. And I think, and, and like I said, I, I think it's probably the only effective argument. The, the other thing is I think that, again, they have convinced their at least pocket of the world, that internet, Fox News watching pocket of the world, that the world is on fire. Always. That like everything is going wrong. It's just this dark place. And I know as a regular human being, it's really not like that. <laughs> like the world is, is you know, it, it's got its challenges. Our country has its challenges, but mm -hmm. you know, unemployment is low. Yeah, We look at wages are still outpacing core inflation. Like we're actually like everyone's like, oh, Joe Biden has destroyed America. And it's like, no, it's no. what I saw. It's what I saw as a kid <laughs> with Clinton and Obama. It's, it's Clinton and Obama all over again. The Republicans burned the place down and now they want to heckle the fire department. And it's it's always Democrats only get elected after Republicans burn it all down. And then Democrats come in to clean up their mess. We saw it with Clinton, saw it with Obama, seeing it again now. Jason, I could talk to you for all night. This is great. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you, sir, and keep track of you and the podcast? 
Um, definitely just check out the podcast, The Working Class Elites. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to uh, push Elon's business, but I am <laughs> Go on. ahead. <laughs> you know, uh, at Dr. Jason Nichols. Uh, you also can find me on Facebook, Jason Nichols, Ph.D., and follow me there. And, of course, you can hear me on Thursdays on Tell Me Everything. Thank you, sir. Have a great, great night. We'll be right back with your calls. This is Progress. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions have honest conversations, just keeping it real and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. Welcome back. Winston Churchill famously called Russia a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And those words, which have been abused in so many other contexts, do seem quite true in the context of the war against Ukraine. The most serious geopolitical crisis since World War II, the first time a country's pretty much tried to erase a sovereign nation off the map since the Nazis. Vladimir Putin thought he could overtake Ukraine in a matter of weeks and instead has put his regime and Russia's economy in danger of destruction. The ICC's issued an arrest warrant for Vladimir Putin. So many sanctions have been levied against the regime. Businesses have pulled out. And yet the conflict in Ukraine only continues to escalate. Owen Matthews is a British journalist, historian and Russia watcher. He writes regularly for Britain's The Spectator. He began reporting from Russia in the mid 90s. He was head of Newsweek's Moscow bureau from 2006 to 2012. And he has written a book astonishing in its analysis and scope. It draws on over 25 years experience as a correspondent in Moscow. His reporting from Ukraine and Russia in the first six months of the war as well as his own family ties to both Russia and Ukraine. The book is essential. It's called Overreach, the inside story of Putin and Russia's war against Ukraine, featuring accounts of current and former insiders from the Kremlin and their propaganda machine, as well as a testimony of captured Russian soldiers and on-the-ground reporting from Ukraine. It's a great pleasure to welcome Owen Matthews to SiriusXM. Hello, sir. Hi, John. Great to be on. Great to have you with us. I, I know you're in Italy, and uh, we're very, very grateful that you would join us. Before we even get to your book, I would be most remiss if I didn't begin by asking about this week's very strange, 
alleged drone attempt upon the roof of the uh, Kremlin. It has been baffling for so many reasons. And it's one of those scenarios that's cropped up so many times during this conflict where I don't know if I should believe what the Kremlin's telling me or what the Western propaganda is telling me. What was your response, sir, when you on this book tour saw this very strange story about a little thing that hit the top of the Kremlin? Yeah, uh, you're, you're absolutely right, John. It's uh, There's been a lot of disinformation um, and a lot of ambiguity about Ukrainian strikes inside Russia. Uh, and there's a very simple reason why the Ukrainians are so cagey or reluctant to admit strikes inside Russia, and that is because it annoys uh, the Americans or worries the Americans. And it worries the Americans for a good reason, because we know... The right from the beginning of this war, that very first intelligence briefing that General Mark Milley, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, gave to Biden and the top security people of the U.S. government right back in October, the end of October of 2021. Number one talking point of Mark Milley when he's talking about Putin's invasion is how do we avoid getting into a kinetic war with Russia? So, in fact, um, you know, the every time Ukraine hits a target inside Russia, especially a very high a target as potentially high profile as the, as, as the Kremlin, uh, that's worrying for Ukraine's backers. And uh, um, the U.S. State Department, the CIA, have repeatedly warned publicly and privately um, the Ukrainians uh, if, of the dangers of that escal escalation. So the, so it's kind of not surprising that the Ukrainians uh, denied it. Um, mm. The question is, you know, was it really the Russians or not? And the answer to that is, uh, I think you kind of have to look at how they played it uh, on their own media. So let's say for the sake of argument that, you know, this is all a setup. The Kremlin attacked itself in order to escalate the war, in order to, you know, whack Zelensky, uh, a variety of reasons, uh, just declare a state of emergency. None of those things actually have happened, and suddenly there hasn't been a state of emergency. The, f the video footage of that drone strike was not played on Russian nightly news. Mm. So you would think if the Russians did this as a kind of provocation, they would, you know, big it up, right? They would like at least play the drone strikes. They they they, they did make, they did uh, repeat the Kremlin spokesman's announcement about denouncing this as, uh, as an assassination attempt against Putin, but um, there's been no state of emergency, and actually. The Russians have started to, to kind of downplay it. So because mm. the Russians have been downplaying it rather than playing it up, that to me somewhat suggests that it was not the Russians. But again, like it's such a hall of mirrors with this stuff. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it was the Ukrainians officially, by the way. Right. So there's actually like a third explanation. You know, it was the Kremlin that bombed itself. It was the Russians bombing. It was the Ukrainians bombing the, 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 the Kremlin. Or it was... Ukrainians or Ukrainian sympathizers that are not sort of necessarily, you know, 100% official. And exactly. but, but that that's something that I guess we'll know uh, a long time after the end of the war when like the final draft of history is, is, is uh, when the full history is written. We're waiting for that full history being written on so many subjects, but you're exactly right. I found it rather curious hearing American officials suggesting all over the place that this was a false flag operation. It didn't seem on brand for this Kremlin to make Putin look weak, to make Putin look vulnerable, to make him look susceptible to some kind of assassination attempt on his own roof. 
Right, exactly. And, and uh, but, you know, that said, you know, the Russians have done some pretty egregious things to themselves. There have been a lot of false flag operations. And in fact, I reported one myself back in 1999, uh, back at the beginning when Putin just became prime minister. There was a series of mysterious apartment bombings over, in which over 300 people were killed in the autumn, in the, in the, in the fall of, of, of 1999. And that was the Putin, Prime Minister Putin back then, that was his reason to whack Chechnya. Mm -hmm. And um, more and more evidence has emerged that that was not the Chechen, it was not Chechen terrorists that blew up those buildings, that it was actually the FSB, the Russian State Security Service, that actually murdered those Russians uh, totally cynically. Uh, they literally made this murderous false flag operation. So it's not like... I wouldn't put it past the Russians to to stage a provocation. They they that is definitely part of their modus operandi. But indeed, in, the, in this case, it's such an admission of vulnerability. The fact that Ukrainians drones can actually penetrate Moscow airspace and hit the heart of the symbolic heart of 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 the Russian state. If I were like in a room at the FSB basement, someone like planning a provocation, that's not the obvious thing to do i mean that would be some you know you would like you know bomb a playground or sort of something you know heaven forbid of course but i mean you know it would be something more sort of outrageously you know fascistic because of course they constantly accuse the ukrainians of of of, of being nazis and fascists uh it, it wouldn't be hitting the kremlin that's that that, that is indeed an admission of weakness I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Chechen conflict, because I, I do think that that's integral to understanding Putin's means of ruling. And it's something that I think has been criminally underreported in many quarters of the West. I, I always wondered if Paul McCartney would have posed for a picture with Putin if he'd known the amount of civilians slaughtered, the amount of Russian troops sent to slaughter in Chechnya. And the narrative we've always been given in the States, as you know, is that there was deep humiliation for the Soviet Union after the collapse for years, and that Putin has sought to restore Russia as a, a true global power. And hence the campaigns in Chechnya, the campaigns in Georgia, Syria, Crimea, showing their new military might. Um, what do we need to understand about the man and the regime? And is that narrative a fair one? Yeah, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're right on both counts. It's, uh, it's kind of forgotten how Putin came to power. And how his literal sort of um, first baptism of fire, in other words, the way that Putin became Putin, this sort of rather gray, you know, uncharismatic uh, young bureaucrat that was selected by a group of oligarchs around the former president, Boris Yeltsin, as a safe pair of hands, as they thought, as a kind of manager. How did this little, uh, this sort of uncharismatic little sort of functionary suddenly become a hero and defender of Russia? Well, the answer is really simple. He started a war. He went to war and became uh, this tough-talking war hero. So um, you, you don't have to... I mean, that's clearly the genesis of the whole thinking behind, you know, Crimea and uh, the Georgian invasion, Crimea, uh, Syria, as you mentioned, and now the invasion it's uh, of, of the, whole, the, the wholesale invasion of, of, of Ukraine. It's just cheap popularity. I mean, all yeah. uh, authoritarian regimes, you know, Orwell describes it brilliantly. You know, if you want to get the people behind you, start a war. And, mm -hmm. you know, that, that, that's the that's Putin's op op modus operandi right from the get-go. He owes his power and popularity and image to a war that he started, or restarted, I would say. I mean, yes. a war of conquest that Russia had lost, that Yeltsin had lost, 
And, you know, he Putin show, shows up and sort of cleans house um, with incredible brutality. I, I, I reported on that war extensively. I was there 13 times in mm. uh, in, in, in uh, on both sides, on the rebel side and on the Russian side. And I saw at first hand how the Russian army uh, fights. And it was pretty brutal and extraordinary. I mean, I, you know, I, I remember on the Chechen border back in September of uh, so October of, of, of 1999 with a bunch of drunk officers and um, we all drank a lot of whiskey and vodka and they sort of stagger out and they order a tank crew into their tank and they just start shelling uh, a Chechen village across the valley just kind of for fun, kind of for target practice and they were trying to like set like a hay barn on fire which they eventually did. Literally just like so, you know, soldiers go, you know, let's screw up that village like you know and they're sort of on sitting on a bench drinking and laughing there's the officers so you know um uh i i have from what we see and read and um there's very little unfortunately first-hand reporting inside the russian army that we can really take seriously or is objective but the it, it seems that that kind of brutality that casual brutality just continues to to get worse and more and just on a larger scale now in ukraine it's clear from your your book overreach that that Putin's perception was the West is weak and divided and Europe is so dependent on our gas that we can use force to create uh, a greater Russia. Most of the world, as you know, is kind of baffled by his official reasons. Uh, it's sort of like the WMDs with Iraq 20 years ago. Denazification. I mean, to me, that's been like his WMD lies. Yes, there's Nazis there, but there's Nazis here. There's Nazis in Russia. I mean, keep NATO from using Ukraine as an anti-Russian platform or, or save the Russians in the Donbass region from genocide. I mean, we, we've heard the reasons. What did Putin think would happen here that did not happen? Um, the, uh, the the really interesting thing is 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 um, and actually kind of the biggest question that I set myself out, set out to answer when I wrote Overreach was not to write a history of the Ukrainian war from the Ukrainian side because there's going to be wonderful histories by my colleagues about that. The, exactly. For me, like what happens in Ukraine is not a mystery. The mystery is like what on earth happened in the Kremlin? How did we get here? What happened in the mind and in the inner circle of this man Vladimir Putin, who basically basically single-handedly sort of led his country into this crazy war. And one of the really important things to bear in mind is that they, Putin and his two closest and oldest allies, this guy called Nikolai Patrushev, who's head of the Security Council, and Alexander Bortnikov, who's head of the, of, of the FSB, are convinced that have been talking about for years, are convinced of the fact that America is absolutely obsessed with regime change in Russia. And they see everything that happens in the post-Soviet space as part of that sort of unrelenting hostility of Washington to Moscow. Now, like, you know, we can say that's crazy, that's paranoid. But to them, everything from the colored revolutions in Tbilisi, in Ukraine, in, in, in Kiev in 2003, 2004, and right up to the ma massive protest that rocked Belarus in the summer of, in, the, in August of 2020, uh, to the Kremlin, to those kind of paranoid old KGB guys, every single incident like that is just further evidence that uh america is just trying to undermine russia surround it and use civil society and opposition inside russia to topple the kremlin that's their total that's central to their thinking they're just paranoid and convinced of that and in that sense are, actually, are they at all correct are, are they at all are they at all correct in this paranoia 
Well, no, I don't think so. Because, I mean, I, I think clearly not. Because yeah. um, what's, what's not to like about Russia that uh, sells cheap oil and gas to the world and yeah. whose uh, uh, rulers, you know, spend their money in European luxury stores? It's great. You know, everyone's, everyone's happy, apart from the Russian people who are being robbed blind. Exactly. So why would you destabilize that situation um, except in the case that those kleptocratic rulers start invading other countries which putin exactly. began doing in 2008 when you so you know the 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 qualitatively the whole tragedy of the putin regime i mean you know tragedy in the greek in the ancient greek sense of like you know creating your own downfall is that everything that putin has tried to prevent he's actually ended up causing exactly. so he like goes to he like invades georgia and invades ukraine in order to prevent them from uh, pre pre prevent nato expansion result is no massive nato expansion and so on but I mean, and uh, I mean, just to finish the, the, the answer to your question about uh, about what what was going through Putin's mind, one of the key quotes about this war is from a, from a, a Kremlin ally, a guy called Viktor Zoltov, who heads the Russian the, the Russian National Guard, and he said, "Ukraine is not important. Ukraine happens to be where the border between Russia and the uh, and the U.S. lies." <laughs> so for them, they really think in their sort of crazy, paranoid minds, minds, we tend to concentrate on, you know, the imperial aspect, recreating the empire. But I think the reality is that in their crazy, paranoid minds, they see this as a war of defense. They're defending themselves against American aggression. And that's just yes. delusional, frankly. Um, but um, that, that, that really is like, the, like the, the, the bottom line for them is to prevent that sort of fantasy of encroaching American influence and uh, uh, sort of security sphere and in, 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 in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet space. They just want to bring an end to that because they see it as a fundamental threat to their own regime. Which means they they cannot afford to lose, and and um, which leads me to ask: should should the U.S. should the West be taking the threat of nuclear weapons being deployed seriously? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, or rather, let me put it this way: I know for a certain fact that the senior leadership of military leadership of NATO takes it very seriously indeed, and the reason why. Uh, they're taking it seriously is not because they're afraid of sort of global thermonuclear war. I mean, in that sense, mutually assured destruction still applies. In other words, you know, if you launch a ballistic missile, you know, with 10 multiple, multiply directed independent warheads at Washington, D.C., you know, Russia ceases to exist. That's nuclear war. But that's not the nuclear war that they're worried about. Right. The nuclear war that they're worried about is like the tactical nukes in fact the smallest tactical nuke ever made by the way it was made it was, it's called w47 it was made in the in the in the 70s by america it's it, it's it fits in 155 millimeter artillery shell which is literally mm -hmm. the size of a coke bottle like a potty yeah. size coke that's the smallest nuke ever made it's really small uh, but nonetheless contains a, as much explosive force as 70 tons of of, of tnt in a shell like that size but what they're talking about is you know what's so-called battlefield nuclear weapons and it the question becomes is there such a thing really as a tactical nuke because when you use a tactical nuke then you get tactically nuked back and then you get an escalation except that you know 
Macron has been has uh, France's president Emmanuel Macron has stated you know, completely explicitly that whatever the US the, the the NATO response to a tactical nuclear strike in Ukraine will be it will not be nuclear mm-hmm. for precisely that reason. Uh, so so uh, we know several things. Uh, we know that the Chinese are adamantly against the use of nuclear, Russia's use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And f- not because they care particularly about world peace, but they care about not being nuked if they invade Taiwan. That's you know, entirely, <laughs> that, that's, that's why the Chinese don't want to do it. They, because they want to keep nukes off the table in Taiwan. And I think that clearly there's not really any battlefield advantage using a nuke i mean you you know maybe kill a few people but then the war becomes uh, you know massively escalated on a, on a conventional way to, which is mm-hmm. what macron said the response will be overwhelming but conventional it's a great way of getting nato into the war wholeheartedly exactly which is obviously highly undesirable for russia there's lots of really excellent reasons for Putin not to use a nuclear weapon except for one and that is if his regime and his life are at stake. Exactly. As you point out so beautifully in Overreach, regime change has never been the goal of the U.S. because there are substantial, well-grounded fears that any replacement for Putin might be much worse than Putin on his worst day. Right. And it's kind of absurd that the Russian paranoia, because uh, about America allegedly being obsessed with uh, with with deposing the, the Putin regime because they kind of forgotten their very recent history, and that is like George H. W. Bush in 1991 in August of 1991, George Bush Senior goes to Kiev and says, tells the Ukrainians, do not confuse freedom and independence. That's right. The official policy of the U.S. administration is not to break up the Soviet Union. Like, okay, they understand that you know, that they need to uh, that the Baltics are going to break free. Okay, Baltics, fine, but the, the Americans did not want the Soviet Union to fall apart because, for the really simple reason, is that. At that time, back in 1991, both Ukraine and Belarus and Kazakhstan um, all had nuclear weapons, Soviet nuclear weapons stationed on their territory. So just out of real politique, America has always realized that, like, that's a really bad idea to break up and cause potential civil wars in major nuclear uh, armed countries. And there's nothing to indicate that 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 realization has disappeared, uh, as as, I, exactly. as we said earlier in our conversation, like Mark Milley, in that first briefing, is like saying, this is question number one, we need to save and defend Ukraine, but without going to war with Russia. And that remains actually like central to, to all of America's strategic thinking. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? 
Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm John Fugel saying this is Progress After Dark. My guest is Owen Matthews. He is the author of the quite essential new book, Overreach, the Inside Story of Putin and Russia's War Against Ukraine. I wanted to ask you about the process of writing the book, because I found it fascinating how, as you began writing, traveling around the region, you found your contacts kind of shrinking. Some of the confidants that you would typically gone to throughout your career were suddenly scared to speak. And I'm curious what that experience was like for you. Yeah, it's having worked in Russia uh, since 1995, I discovered, I mean, over those decades, I've actually met with and you know, built up a rather large team of uh, you know, uh, array of, of contacts. And uh, one of the odd things about the beginning of the war was people who were oppositionists always rather sort of who had been rather fatalistic about meeting with the western correspondents they'd always been rather sort of brave and bold and reckless so you know the opposition guys you know still continue to meet with me obviously what the change was the pro-putin guys so right. you know all of the you know ministers former ministers you know the 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 advisors the kremlin propagandists and so on uh it was clear to all of them that you know the rules had changed the rules of the game. Formerly, it was no problem to meet for the whole Putin period. Like, you know, very few people, I can count in the fingers of one hand, basically how many people over my 20-year, 25-year career had refused to meet me because they were afraid of meeting with a Western correspondent. And then suddenly, it was clear to the whole swathe of the elite that everything had changed and the old rules and understandings had disappeared, but no one really knew what the new rules were. So some people were you know, very paranoid. Most people didn't return my calls or texts. I ended up you know, kind of being pretty sneaky, actually. I just uh, you know, would find mutual friends who would invite like this guy and me to a dinner. And then we would have you know, a dinner and everyone right. had a few glasses of wine. And it was sort of, you know, dinners as uh, people who are maybe not journalists might, might not know this. But like, you know, when you meet someone in a social context and you're, you're you know, it's, that's pretty much by definition off the record. That's not an interview. That's sort of an unplugged conversation, you know, in a private place. And that, that, that was actually one of the frustrating things about writing this book, because no journalist, especially not one that spent a uh, quarter of a century working for Newsweek or an American publication likes using anonymous sources. Anonymous sources are really uh, difficult and undesirable. And it's, it's always you know, a big ask to ask the reader to you know, just trust you. By the way, I mm -hmm. spoke to this guy, I promise you, he's really important, he's really <laughs> knows, but I can't tell you his name. You know, you know, no journalist likes to do that. But I found myself actually having to quote a lot of anonymous sources because, you know, they were afraid. They were just yeah. afraid of the consequences of, uh, of, of speaking their minds. Um, and uh, most of them, I have to say, and most of the people who, who whom I spoke to were in a state of kind of denial and shock and completely you know thrown for a loop many of them even like quite senior people 
have been totally convinced that Putin wasn't going to do it, that it was all a big bluff. So actually, you know, outside that little tiny inner circle, uh, you know, which is basically a black, black box, I mean, nobody speaks to like the people who are really immediately around Putin, uh, mm-hmm. not even Russian journalists, nobody. But, you know, the, those sort of second, third tier people, you know, the, 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 the Duma deputies, the ministers, all that kind of, all those guys, completely shocked and taken by surprise. And many of them, you know, frankly, kind of, not happy about the situation it's such a fascinating element of 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 your story and and looking forward obviously no one expects to ever see vladimir putin put in the dock and arrested anywhere you believe that this spring offensive will be ukraine's last chance to regain any territory if it's even possible and then the general consensus of everyone not named putin seems to be that this conflict will be heading towards some kind of negotiated end game regardless of how well ukraine does in the spring is that a accurate if somewhat depressing way of looking at it um yeah except i, I put it slightly differently i mean is, is, since we can't predict what 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 the military situation is going to is, is going to pan out on the ground how much you, ground ukraine is going to take it's maybe more useful to like start with things that we know to be highly unlikely so let's say like how likely is it that this time next year you know vladimir zelensky will do another round of you know fundraising you know get another major army together for 2024 offensive that the same people in the us and europe that gave him all this military equipment and hardware and money uh this year will do that again next year i think that's very unlikely I think, unfortunately, that's very unlikely uh, for several reasons, and we can go into the, 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 those in, in a moment. But I think, you know, the, uh, by this time next year, or at least by this winter, there's going to be a very strong movement, both in the US and Europe, to bring an end to the conflict. In other words, it's the, 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 the end game of this conflict among the Western allies of Ukraine is not going to be, you know, pro-Putin or pro Zelensky. Everyone's right. still pro Zelensky. The debate is justice or peace. And what do we mean by that? Like justice means like, you know, kicking yeah. Ukraine, uh, kicking Russia, Putin out of Ukraine and reparations and war crimes. That's justice. Exactly. Or peace. But peace just means putting an end to the conflict and stopping people from dying. But uh, almost certainly at the, at the cost of, of territorial losses. So uh, you know, I, I think your scenario is 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 unfortunately pessimistic, but but right that Ukraine is going to. Uh, this is U- Ukraine's big push. They, uh, I think they're never going to have as good a chance, just because of the way that the. their support works in the West. Uh, I think this is their big shot. I wish them the best of luck. But I think they're against a entrenched enemy with a very large amount of, okay, bad hardware. The problem is, I'm not a military expert, but I do speak quite to a lot of military experts. Um, The problem is that Ukraine has better quality equipment has better quality, better trade troops. It has, you know, better leadership. It has better communications. It has better, pro- you know, everything about the Ukrainian army is better. Uh, they have quality. The Russians have quantity. In other words, they have their own, you know, 
ancient tanks. They have the you know, four they're, times they're, as many, four times as many tanks. They war bodies, but they've got so many. So, like you know, uh, and 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 the, just to quantify this, I mean, with concrete numbers, you know, uh, if you put it all together, it depends whether you count, you know, our Bradley's tanks or infantry, the infantry fighting meter vehicles. You know, what's a main battle tank, etc. Blah blah. But like, apart from the military geek stuff, let's say that Ukraine has got about two hundred and fifty heavy fighting vehicles, including main battle tanks from its Western supporters, including about 50 Leopards, 20, 20, uh, 12 Challengers from the US, uh, from the UK, and so on, 250 tanks from the West, versus about 1,400 at least, according to um, you know, the, the British yep. Ministry of Defense, main, Russian main, main battle tanks, tanks still in the field. Dmitry Medvedev, the former president of Russia, and uh, Promise that they're they're, they're going to ramp up their production and produce fifteen hundred a year more. Who knows if that's true? But the the key point is, in a conflict uh, um, of quality against quantity, if you plot that graph, unfortunately, at a certain point on that graph, quantity will still beat quality, and that's kind of the major the major problem. Yeah. And the, and the, the the third part of your scenario was um, about the. Uh, this is going to end in a negotiating, negotiated settlement. Uh, that's the part that I, I don't think I can, I agree with. Uh, oh. and, for, and for one really, and that's, and, and that's for, for one really simple reason is that, uh, is the negotiated part. It's the negotiated part. Uh, because no Ukrainian president, whether it's Zelensky or anybody, can survive signing a land for peace deal with Russia. That's just Correct. totally inconceivable, but that's what it's going to be. So how do you square those irreconcilable things? Zelensky, in fact, um, the, the, the Ukrainian parliament in October passed a law literally making it illegal to do a deal with Putin's mm -hmm. regime. So yeah. therefore, there's not going to be a deal. There's not going to be a peace deal. Uh, what's going to happen, I suspect, is... Um, you know, it's going to be a sort of Korea type situation or a Cyprus, uh, North Cyprus type situation. You have a line of control, you know, the fighting stops, um, there's a ceasefire, which then sort of becomes, uh, you know, essentially a new border, but there's no peace deal. And that's kind of bad for Ukraine, but the, the Ukraine can't really sign away any of its territory because you know so much blood has been spilt and that uh, risks a rewarding aggression however in practical yeah. terms um i think it's highly likely that that, that putin is going to hang on to uh, you know, quite a significant part of the territory that he's already taken unfortunately uh because there's no way to get him out of it because russia has nukes and and the ukraine and doesn't ukraine doesn't that's it. And I think you're completely right. You said whatever the end of this war, the Ukrainians will feel betrayed, that their land has been sacrificed to appease Putin. But unfortunately, in realistic military terms, I don't actually see any other serious outcome for the war than the eventual territorial loss for Ukraine. It seems like no matter how it ends, Putin will find a way to declare victory. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's probably true. But there's another way to look at it. So there's a... a Zelensky's first uh, foreign minister, a guy called Vadim Pristaiko, was uh, yes. fired from his job at the end of 2019 for saying that, essentially, if Donbass doesn't want to be part of Ukraine, then we should just cut it off like a gangrenous limb. Why? Exactly. There's not, nothing good will ever happen in Ukraine from just hanging on to these people who don't want to be Ukrainians. They don't want to be Ukrainians, fine. They don't want to be Ukrainians, you know, goodbye. 
Uh, now, he was fired for that because that's political yeah. heresy because, you know, there are, you know, we don't really know the proportions. I've been to Donbass, by the way, <laughs> um, in 2014, 2015. You know, I, 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 can, I could not tell you what proportion of the people there uh, are pro-Kiev and what proportion are pro-Moscow because so many left. So this is the thing. When you go there now, and several friends of mine, uh, both Russian colleagues and uh, a couple of brave foreigners, including Anne Niva from Le Point, have been on reporting trips to Russian-occupied Donbass, uh, Mariupol, Donbass itself, uh, Donetsk itself. They did not find more or less anybody who wanted to be liberated by Kiev. There were some people who were pro-Kiev, but they didn't really want the war to come back to the city and didn't want it to be to be fought over again in the case of Mariupol. And that's because all the pro-Kiev people are not there anymore. You know, it's right. de facto ethnic cleansing. They've all <laughs> they've had eight years. It's it's a you know horrific war zone. It's a total dump. You know, this 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 once prosperous part of Ukraine, it was once the most one of the most prosperous in the Soviet era, is just this sort of mafia controlled, you know, war zone um and any kind of smart person whether they're pro-kiev or not you know has either left to russia to ukraine you know but, but the fact is that the people who are there right now are not pro-kiev that is really true and that's becomes a problem a moral problem because yes okay we can all totally agree that Crimea was illegally annexed in 2014. We can all totally agree that Putin's intervention in Donbass in 2014 was a mixture of you know, freelancers, FSB proxies, um, you know, security service proxies, Russian regular troops that were sent in when those guys actually like failed to, to to hold back the Ukrainian army. You know, it was a Russian intervention in a sovereign country that was bad. On the other hand, what does a war for Donbass? really look like or a war for the rebel republics of donbass really look like you know are we in the business of spending blood and treasure compelling people who do not want to be ukrainian to be ukrainian mm-hmm. exactly. and that's really like if, if you try and have that argument with my ukrainian friends they get very angry because they say like no it's ukraine it's you know it's our, yeah. it's our country yeah well yeah except the people who are there don't agree with you they i'm sorry but they don't so what are you going to do about them? Are you going to force them? You're going to say, well, yeah, but they've been brainwashed by Russian propaganda. Sure, they have. Yeah, definitely. They've been brainwashed by Russian propaganda. You know, you, what, but are you going to like send the entire population to like a re-education camp until they you know, think that Kiev is great and want to be Ukrainian? You know, so this is all to your point of, you know, Putin hangs on to some Ukrainian land. Um, yeah. Actually, that doesn't spell disaster for Ukraine. By the way, Ukraine can be prosperous, democratic. They can rebuild their their shattered country, you know, um, on their own terms without those territories. It doesn't have to be a catastrophe. Um, blood has been spilled. Putin's aggression has been a, a little bit rewarded because he's he's hung on to these territories. But the territories are worth nothing. They're a wasteland. Yeah, the industry has been destroyed. Most of the people left. You know, Ukraine can continue and thrive and survive and actually be secure if NATO offers security guarantees. Just build a barbed wire fence and move on. Just 
you know, build a new future without those territories. That's unfortunately the situation they're going to be faced with. But what I'm saying is that like, it doesn't have to be like a, a national catastrophe for Ukraine. From your lips, uh, Owen Matthews, I could speak to you about this for hours. The book is essential. It's called Overreach, the inside story of Putin and Russia's war against Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Italy and for being so generous with your time. This book is dynamite, and I learned a lot. Thank you immensely. Thank you very much. My great pleasure, John. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.